the announcement sheet, if you want to follow that. It'll be in Genesis chapters 17 and 18, which is on page 12 in the Pew Bibles. title of the message this afternoon is Waiting on God's Promises. Is it worth it? Last night, I took my oldest three to go see Solo, uh, the new Star Wars movie. And don't worry, I'm not going to ruin it for anybody. But kind of following this Star Wars series and all these new movies, you know, a movie comes out and then the announcement comes out that the, the next movie's coming out in like two years, right? And that feels like forever, waiting two years for a movie to come out. And, you know, we get, we anticipate it and we're excited and, and we're just like, ah, and we can't wait for it to come out and you know, just like Joe was talking about up here with the kids, kids have a hard time waiting for their birthday, especially if they, maybe if they know what they're getting for their birthday, they have a really hard time waiting for it, that anticipation that comes. And I think the idea of waiting as a kid uh, and the idea of waiting as an adult are often different. Uh, as a kid, it feels like time just goes so slow, right? Like it's never going to get here. And as adults, we're just, we just feel like time's going so fast, I just can't keep up with everything that's going on. And we still anticipate and wait for things, obviously. But if we're honest, I think we find it hard to wait for things, don't we? And it's not just natural things, like natural cycles of life, uh, the seasons or the upcoming holidays. We find it hard to wait for supernatural things, things that we can't see, promises that God has made to us and we wait and we long and sometimes it causes us to look inward and say oh you of little faith because we have such a hard time waiting on God there are uncertainties there are frustrations in our lives that have the potential to be dominant forces this side of the fall in the face of these uncertainties and these frustrations in our life this is kind of our big idea here. We can wait on and trust in our gracious God and his covenant promises. We can wait on and trust in our gracious God and his covenant promises. We're wrapping up Genesis uh, until the fall. This will be our last sermon in Genesis. We're going to be beginning Ecclesiastes next week, starting at the outdoor service and going through Ecclesiastes all of June, July, and August. We're going to look in a little bit at the beginning of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to see how Genesis has actually, I think, prepared us very well to read Ecclesiastes and to read it well and to be informed by it. We've been arguing that Genesis is foundational to our, our understanding of all of Scripture. It's, under, it's foundational to the way we see the rest of the Old Testament. It's foundational in that it points us forward to Christ and helps us to understand the gospel and understand who we are as the people of God. And we've been starting to kind of get into that a little bit these last couple weeks here with this idea of covenant. So last week we were in the first half of Genesis chapter 17, God renamed Abraham, uh, he instituted the, the covenant of circumcision, we saw how that 
pointed to some other places in the Old Testament where really the heart behind it was the circumcision of the heart. It wasn't just an outward sign. It was actually some, a sign of an inward change that God wanted to do in his people. We looked at that idea of being cut off for breaking the covenant and how Jesus was cut off on our behalf. How Jesus actually became a covenant breaker. Jesus became a curse by becoming sin for us and dying in our place. So that brings us to the second half of Genesis 17 here into the second half of chapter 18. So we'll be looking at Genesis 17, 15 through 18, 15. Let's pay attention to the reading of God's word. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house Those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, 
Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, this afternoon, may we believe your word. May we believe the truth that nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is impossible with you. And God, may these ancient promises made to this ancient man and woman, may it inform our lives, may it inform our walks with you, May it inform our devotion to you, and may our hearts be changed by you and by your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you're following along in the ESV, this passage breaks up nicely into four different paragraphs, uh, two paragraphs there in chapter 17 and two paragraphs in chapter 18. We're going to be kind of following those paragraphs in our four sections here that we're going to look at. The first section we're going to look at is chapter 17, verses 15 to 21, that first paragraph. The promise is clarified. So God had made a promise earlier in the chapter to Abraham. He comes to him again and he says that I'm going to change Sarai's name to Sarah. Her name will no longer be called Sarai, which means prince. It will now be called Sarah, which also means prince. And as we talked about with Abraham the, the name change in and of itself doesn't seem like this drastic change. And I think that's because the emphasis isn't on the change itself. The emphasis is on what God's going to do. God is saying, I'm giving you a new identity. I'm making you a new person. I'm giving you this new name so that you can live out this new calling that I am giving you. He promises that there will be a son by Sarah that nations and kings will come from her. The same promise that God gave, again, to Abraham. The same language that God used when he gave the promise to Abraham earlier in the chapter. And as we saw earlier, Abraham fell on his face before the Lord. Like out out of worship, out of reverence. This time Abraham falls on his face, but it's a little bit of a different falling on his face. In verse 17, Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? There's a lot of debate about what type of laughter this actually was. Whether this was a mocking type of laughter. Where if Abraham was kind of mocking God, saying, yeah, right, there's no way this can happen. Or if it was just a kind of an innocent doubting, like, ha, yeah, right. Like, I don't think that can happen type of laughter. I think it's probably the latter. I think it's more of just kind of a a doubting, like, how can this happen? Sarah's old. Like, just kind of a chuckling, like, ha ha, probably not going to happen. So Abraham doesn't think that's going to be able to happen. And then in typical Abraham fashion, he tries to intervene again. Uh, He tries to do things according to his own plans. Saying to God, God, you've already given me a son, right? You've given me Ishmael. And I can't really, 
I can't take this waiting anymore. You're telling me it's going to be another year that I have to wait. I can't sit around and wait. I can't wait for more potential heartbreak. In other words, Abraham is saying, God, isn't this good enough? Isn't what I have already from you good enough? And God says, no, Abraham. We're going to do this my way. You are going to have a son by Sarah. And you're going to call his name Isaac. And the name Isaac means laughter. There's a connection to Abraham's laughter and to Sarah's laughter. Isaac will be born to you at this time next year. God makes that promise. Well, I wonder, how do we treat the promises of God in our lives? When we think, well, that'll never happen. Or maybe we settle for something that might not be exactly what God has intended for us. I want to be careful here because I'm not talking about promises that God makes like land and possessions and descendants and the things that he was promising to Abraham. None of those things have been promised to us in Christ the way that they were promised to Abraham. At least not physically. They, some of those things are things that we may receive in one sense, but just not in this life. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, said, In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Christian, take heart when the world mocks you. When it feels like the promises of God are not coming true in your life and that they will never come true in your life. When waiting feels like forever. When you'd rather laugh in God's face than trust him for his promises. Wait, trust And obey. Abraham was far from perfect. We've seen that over and over. But through all of his sin, through all of his doubt, through all of his failures, he still followed the Lord. He still did what God told him to do. And we see that here in our next section. The second section here, the promise is obeyed. Verses 22 to 27. Abraham and all the men in his household, they obey the Lord and they are circumcised. They receive the sign of the covenant, the physical outward sign of the covenant that says that they belong to the Lord and that they will not be cut off from the Lord as covenant breakers. Last week we talked about how baptism replaces circumcision as a sign of the new covenant, how it is a Christian identity marker. That Baptism is a matter of obedience in a similar way that circumcision was a matter of obedience in the Old Testament. It's a way of saying, I identify with Christ. So whether it's bringing our children to the waters of baptism, or whether it's coming to our baptism as adult converts, we are obeying the Lord in that. So Abraham obeyed God even though he was still waiting, he still hadn't received what God had promised, he still obeyed the Lord. We can relate to this, can't we? The call to obey, the call to walk with the Lord when we haven't received everything that we've been promised. Walking by faith and not by sight in this world. I love the end of Hebrews chapter 11. 
that great chapter, the hall of faith, right? All the Old Testament saints, all the ways that they walked by faith and lived by faith and trusted the Lord, trusted in his promises. Hebrews chapter 11 ends by saying, and all these, that is the Old Testament saints, commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So even those like Abraham in the Old Testament who had these amazing encounters with God as we're about to see in our next section, even they were still waiting in a sense for the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises at the final consummation when the Lord returns and makes all things new. In this next section, we're going to get to see a sweet foretaste of that day when we will see the Lord face to face. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. The promise giver appears. So we're told that three men appear to Abraham. We know from his conversation that one of them is the Lord. Uh, Most commentators say that the other two are angels, We see that a little bit later in chapter 18 and then chapter 19 in the story of of Sodom and Gomorrah, which follows. And there's a lot of contrast between this part of chapter 18 and then what's to follow with Sodom and Gomorrah. This picture of hospitality here and kind of the anti-hospitality picture later on. So there's a lot of things going on here. We're not going to be able to get into all that. But the Lord appears here to Abraham in, in the flesh. And there's a lot of questions going on here about this theophany, about what does this mean. And the goal here is, for me, I don't, I don't want to look at all the different options and try to understand all the details and how could this have happened and what exactly is going on. But I think the heart behind this is to see that God comes to Abraham. God enters in. He enters into his world and he is with him. He is dwelling with him. He appears, he has served a meal, he's given rest and refreshment from Abraham. And two important things I want us to think about with this. The first is that it points us to Christ's incarnation. It gives us a framework for hearing these words in the beginning of John's gospel, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That wouldn't have been a totally foreign concept if people would have been reading this story and understanding it rightly. The Lord had already appeared to Abraham. So when he comes in the flesh, it's not completely mind-blowing. The second thing is that the Lord here was on the receiving end of Abraham's hospitality. But it's going to be the reverse in the new heavens and the new earth. It's not us who will be waiting on the Lord, washing his feet, encouraging him to rest, and feeding him. This is exactly what Christ did while he was on the earth. It says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We are the ones who are served by God. We get to dwell in his house. It's not him coming to our house. We are the guests, and he gets to shower love and hospitality and graciousness upon us. Jesus' earthly ministry was a foretaste of God making his dwelling with us and us being with him as his people forever. And this is our hope. This is what we wait for. When the days get long, 
when the seasons of our life get long, when it seems like God's promises in our life will never be fulfilled. Christian, wait on the Lord. Preach the gospel to yourself like David did in Psalm 62, verses 5 through 8. He said, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. Finally, we see that the promise is doubted. Verses 9 through 15, the promise is doubted. So we see this promise again that the Lord will return in one year and that Sarah will have a son. It says it in verse 10, the Lord tells Abraham. And Sarah is in her tent and she overhears this conversation. And now it's her turn to laugh. How can this be? I'm old, I'm worn out. It's physically impossible for me to get pregnant. How can this be? She laughs. And in this laughter, as a result of this laughter, the Lord confronts Abraham and Sarah in their unbelief. Verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Isaac's birth had to be a miracle. It had to be 100% the work of the Lord. But Sarah was afraid. But what was the cause of her fear and her doubt? Maybe the feeling that things are going to happen like they always do, People live and people die, right? People come and go. They come into our lives and then they're gone. And people don't have children in old age. Life is wearisome and frustrating. We have a a saying that I think has become pretty popular in the last maybe five or ten years, right? It is what it is, right? When bad stuff happens in life, it is what it is, right? We even say that as Christians. It is what it is. Well, these are some of the themes that we're going to be wrestling with as we go through Ecclesiastes this summer. Questions about hope and meaning in this frustrating life under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11 is our sermon text for next week. If you have your pew Bibles, you can turn there. It's on page 553. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Verses 1 through 11. And as I read this, listen to this and hear the voice of Sarah. Hear the voice of Sarah saying, it is what it is. There's nothing I can do. Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? 
A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. It is what it is. But what if it isn't? What if it isn't? What if there was another young woman who said, how can this be since I am a virgin? And what if the answer she received was, nothing will be impossible with God? Is anything too hard for the Lord? The hope of the Old Testament people of God rested in God doing the impossible through a miraculous birth, Isaac. And the hope of the world lies in another miraculous birth. What if the incarnation of Jesus breaks the endless cycle of inevitability? What if the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us? What if he lived a perfect life, died a death that he didn't deserve in our place, and rose again from the grave? What if he ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of the Father, and said, I am coming soon to take you home to be with me forever? Does that change the narrative for us? Does that change the narrative for our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our family members? Those who live out that frustrating cycle of Ecclesiastes chapter 1? Asking, what do I gain from all this toil? Why do I keep getting up every day, go and do the same job over and over and over? Is there any meaning? Is there any purpose in all of this? Is it worth it? And our answer must be yes. Yes, it is worth it. Because he who promised is faithful. You know, my greatest fear in, in walking with Jesus, in being a pastor and, and trying to lead this church, my greatest fear isn't, is it true, right? It's not, is the gospel true? I mean, there may be moments where, you know, deepest moments of despair, is this really true? But my greatest fear is, is it, is it all worth it? Is it worth it to, to do this thing? Is it worth it to live this life? To be an outcast as a Christian? To be this crazy person, right? Over the last couple of months, I've been 
wrestling with this a little bit, thinking through these things, just seeking the Lord, and uh, a friend introduced me to uh, a new album by Andrew Peterson, a guy, a great Christian singer I've known about for a long time, but he just put out an album called Resurrection Letters. It just came out for Easter, and there's a song in that, on that album called Is He Worthy, which is amazing. That's not actually the song that I'm going to reference, but I went to listen to that song, and then I came across this song. It's called I've Seen Too Much. You have to listen to this song, I've Seen Too Much by Andrew Peterson. He's talking about the disciples after the resurrection who saw Jesus, who saw him, who touched him, who ate with him. And they said, I've seen too much, I've seen too much to go back to the way things were. I've seen too much to give up hope. And this is the bridge in the song. He says, it's all I can do to get up in the morning. All I can do to stand up in the storm. When all I remember is the passing form, a glimpse of the glory before it was gone. And I get so tired of this ridicule, but I cannot deny what I know to be true, because I've seen too much. What else can I do? Where else can I go, Lord? Where else can I go but to you? And we must respond the same way, brothers and sisters. We've seen too much. We've seen the risen Christ. Not with our physical eyes, but we've seen him with the eyes of faith. We've tasted, we've touched, we've experienced him, and we've seen too much. We can't go back. We can't throw in the towel now. We can't give up hope. We've seen too much. It is worth it. Let's pray. God, thank you that you meet us where we're at. Often in our weakness, just like Abraham and Sarah, laughing, doubting, living in fear, not knowing what the next day is going to hold, not knowing what's going to happen to our futures, but knowing, God, that you are in control, trusting you, And saying, where else can we go? We've seen too much. God, give us eyes to see how you're at work in our lives, how you're at work in this church, how you're at work in this community, how you're at work in this world, when it feels like you're not. Help us to see. Help us to love you, to fall down before you, to worship, to give you our lives, to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.